3: The Can We Please Talk podcast is coming live to Washington, D.C., Thursday, October 27th, City Tap House between 5 to 8 p.m. Join Nick and myself over there in the private area of City Tap House. We've got some fantastic guests lined up, guests that you've heard on this program. We'll play some games. going to have some panels. We're going to have some fun. Come on out. Washington, D.C., City Tap House between 5 to 8 p.m. Admission is free. If you want to find out more about the event, head to LeonMediaNetwork.com hey everybody welcome into another episode of the can we please talk podcast i am mike leon and the spider from mars to mike's ziggy stardust
1: shout out to one of bowie's best albums that's over my shoulder today i'm nick saveri
3: that's that's decent. I, that one will stay in. Uh, you you wrapped it up there with a bow there. It's, it's just, once you drop Bowie, uh, I'll let it slide. Uh, on the program today, folks, we're about 25 days before the midterm elections. I uh, have about 25 days or so, as depending upon when you're listening to this recording. Early voting is starting already in some key states. Nick and I will take a look at some big Senate races that are happening across the country and react to some of the recent debates that we've seen play out in Ohio and Wisconsin. Plus, later on in the program, human rights attorney, uh, she's also a board member on the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center and the director of the Atlantic Council of Strategic Litigation Project. Gisu Nia is going to be joining us to go over the latest that's happening in Iran with the protest. Gisu in our second segment. Before we get to that, I say hello to Mr. Nick Severi. Nick, the Raiders, the Raiders stink. We're going to leave that there. My Yanks are in the playoffs. Your Red Sox are home like they should be. Anything else going on, though, in the (laughs) Zaveri household besides Halloween, uh, getting ready for D.C.? We've got a bunch of different things coming up over here at at LMN. Uh, You could check out everything that we got going on, LeonMediaNetwork.com. New show coming out soon. Uh, It's not a new show. If you're in the boxing MMA space, you would know this show, but uh, a new show that will potentially uh, be coming onto Leon Media Network. How's everything else going on with you, though? Buddy, I haven't I haven't talked to you in a few days, at least on camera.
1: Yeah, no, we're good. Uh, you know, I mean, football wise, listen, the Raiders are what they are, but uh, I did well, eleven and five against the money line. I'm I'm quite proud of that. You know, um, our our yeah, listeners
3: are not going to know what that means. Eleven. Then and they five can minutes.
1: go back and listen to the episode with Brian.
3: oh yeah Yeah. they're gonna go all the way back there like episode seven or something exactly no
1: you should all go do that for for gambling advice too um no we're good here this is a i am daddying hardcore this week Uh, my wife is away going to a great conference just to you know learn about more especially in the work that she's doing with her residency program at her hospital now Uh, and then she's off to see some friends so we are super excited that she gets some just much needed some time away. Uh, so I'm bouncing work with the kids, um, and just got a good plan every day. You know, like it's like like football, man. You gotta have it scripted out. <laughs> so first, <laughs> that the team is the place. goal. So yeah, between now and you know Sunday afternoon, when my wife gets back. Um, it's just yeah, it's just me and the
3: girls, and just you, yeah. just you yeah. count down the days. It sounds like yeah, <laughs> pray, pray for me, man. Just <laughs> right, right. at least right. the Raiders get a bye week. I, that's that's not that, my future right now. That is true. Well, funny enough, I'm actually on my way out or traveling for work, or just for a couple of days out in Chicago. Uh, we mentioned on the last episode that we've been doing uh, some focus group research with with voters in Miami down here in Florida. We're doing stuff in New York, in Illinois. Uh, we're going to be doing something in D.C. In addition to our live show, talking to voters and stuff like that. All of this coming out here on this feed uh, before the midterms. So more on that in the coming weeks. Uh, speaking of the coming weeks, Nick, in our first segment here, let's transition to our first segment, because in the coming weeks is the midterm elections. Um, I saw a stat and I'm I'm going to pull it up while we're, we're talking here. But I saw a stat uh, tw- tweeted out by Michael Betchloss who's a famous historian, I believe he's an uh, NBC News contributor as well, about how many people recently polled said they would vote in the midterm elections. Um, It was a very, very small number of people. And and as we're talking right now, this was the poll from NBC News and Generation Lab. Uh, 34% said they would absolutely certainly vote in the midterm elections. 38% probably will about 20% said they won't and 8% said they definitely won't. Um, So 28%, they're saying that they probably or definitely won't vote. 72% saying they're absolutely certain or probably will. You got to hope that probably will at 38% turns out to vote. And what states are they voting in? Early voting calendar is up. You can go to vote.org to check out in your state And it varies by location if you can early vote. But there's some big races that are playing out nationally, Nick. You and I are going to take a look at a a few that are happening right now. Uh, Obviously, out in Ohio, Tim Ryan going up against J.D. Vance. We got in Wisconsin, the Senate race between Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes. Uh, Out in Nevada as well is another big Senate race happening there uh, with the Democratic candidate, Catherine Cortez Mastro. Um, First, let's go into the Ohio one, because I know that debate recently just happened. And Tim Ryan and J.D. Vance, uh, obviously, Tim Ryan, a member of the House of Representatives right now, going for that Senate seat that's going to be vacated by Rob Portman as he leaves office in November. These two recently had a a debate. And a lot of the issues that we've talked about on this show that are playing out in society, even when I ranked when I did the uh, polling with with some of the focus group stuff in Miami, we had them rank issues, right? Healthcare and reproductive rights in terms of like what was happening with Roe v. Wade being overturned where are you on immigration? Where are you on in terms of ranking these issues, democracy and, and the importance of your vote, uh, things like that. And you're seeing a lot of these issues play out in the debates. Why don't you take a listen to a little bit of the debate between J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan that happened this past week.
2: J.D. Vance raised money for the legal defense fund of the insurrectionists. This is the kind of extremism, JD, that we wholly reject. You have video posts, don't even try to deny it. We got got your Twitter posts and everything else, everybody's seen it. Who says that the president of the United States is intentionally trying to kill people with fentanyl? Who says that the election was stolen? JD Vance does. Who runs around with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who wants to ban books? You're running around with Lindsey Graham, who wants a national abortion ban. You're running around with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's the absolute looniest politician in America. Can you imagine one guy saying out of one side of his mouth he's pro-cop, and out of the other side of his mouth he's raising money for the insurrectionists who are beating up the Capitol Police? the 10-year-old girl, the case that we've of course heard a lot about, an incredibly tragic situation. I mean, look, I've got a 9-year-old baby girl at home. I cannot imagine what's that, what that's like for the girl, for her family. God forbid something that, like that would happen. I have said repeatedly on the record that I think that that girl should be able to get an abortion if she and her family so choose to do so. But let's talk about that case. Because why was a 10-year-old girl raped in our community, raped in our state in the first place? The thing the media and Congress and Ryan, they talk about this all the time. The thing they never mentioned is that poor girl was raped by an illegal alien, somebody that should have never been in this state in the first place. You voted so many times against border wall funding, so many times for amnesty, Tim. If you had done your job, she would have never been raped in the first place. Do your job on border security. Don't lecture me about opinions I don't actually have.
3: A lot of interesting things being hit on there. obviously Ryan's harping on January 6th and some of the stuff that Vance has said in support of the the rioters on January 6th, Vance hitting him back on immigration stuff and the case that played out, you know, that rape case uh, in in Ohio and, you know, in terms of migrant crimes, which is another talking point on the Republican side, Um, 30 plus million dollars has poured into the state from Republicans in support of J.D. Vance uh, over the last, I think, week or so, recent political polling uh, has this leaning more towards Vance RCP polling average of about 1.2 percentage points right now. And and it's leaning in Vance's direction. It depends on what polls you look at, but that's the latest as of political. Nick, um, I'm going to play. Obviously, we're going to get next into Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes because that's a huge uh, race that's happening in Wisconsin and that Senate seat. We know where the Senate is right now on this 50 50 split. Dems need to win a few seats here to have the majority and then potentially uh, maybe get the filibuster enacted or vice versa. Republicans, you know, there's a lot of of sitting members of Congress right now, both in the House of Representatives and the Senate, that are leaving office or, or, or are, you know, up for reelection. We're going to go into a bunch of these races, but these are the ones that are being outlined as. Pretty close right now and it could swing in either direction. What do you, what are some of your takeaways here on not only the race, but what we just played in the clip there from the debate that happened between uh, uh Vance and Ryan? Yeah, I, I think JD Vance is a racist. I mean, you're gonna lead
1: with, well, she wouldn't the child wouldn't have been raped if you know we had done something about illegal immigrants. So I'm supposed to believe then that anytime someone's been raped in this country, it's done by an illegal immigrant, that somehow border policy is going to make women safer in this country. We heard this once before. We've heard this many times, actually, from some conservatives, beginning with Donald Trump back in 2015 when he announced he was running for president. For president, you know, talking about well, you know, they're letting in rapists when we talk about Mexicans. So that's co- that wasn't even coded language; just say it out loud. Like you think people, you people, you think people coming from south of the border are the ones who are likely to to rape our women. Which, by the way, for any of you whoever has study any f- sort of film history would understand the birth of a nation was based on this premise about you know former slaves you know now they're out the bout. they're likely to rape our white women. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense and it's a shocking way to pivot from a conversation about the access to an abortion to why the person was ab- was raped in the first place. And it's it, it just baffling to me. Yeah, you know, the thing you the thing that you didn't play though another great clip that came from that debate was something that we that Democrats seem to struggle doing, which is calling out the hypocrisy of of these so called you know manly alpha male conservatives. There's a clip out there of Trump you know playfully talking about how Vance has had to you know, as he put it, kiss his ass you know, to get any type of attention, you know, and then Vance comes up and, you know, willingly shakes his hand and, and acts like nothing was wrong. Like he just didn't get emasculated about five seconds ago, you know, and Ryan did what we've always said. I mean, when Ted Cruz's wife was insulted by the president, Cruz, who absolutely has no ability as a, as a husband to defend his spouse. um, We saw that with Marco Rubio, we've seen other Republicans, Jeb Bush, another one who basically got humiliated. By one of their own. And no one here, none of them, these same people that talk about the left being the ones who want to emasculate or feminize, whatever nonsense you want to put out there. And it's just, it's, it's, it, the calls coming from within the house is all I'm saying. That race, though, got, has gotten closer for two reasons. One, Vance's affiliation with Peter Thiel, who's the CEO of PayPal, has become public knowledge. We're all very much aware now of essentially a venture capitalist just bundling money into that race. It's also interesting because the Senate, you know, the Senate Republican committee has its own you know method of fundraising. Mitch McConnell basically holds the purse strings, just like on the democratic side with um, majority leader Schumer. And there have been conversations about where do you send the money? So much so that McConnell and Steele have had a, of really a back and forth about where the direct funds and Ohio is where the money is going to start going because it's going to be a tighter race. Um, in that polling day you mentioned one polling i'm looking at over at race to the whitehouse.org um has about 10% of people undecided and that's what i'm really interested in because other than that it's about 45 46 at this point it's a close race to the 10% of people what is going to interest them i'm that's what i'm fascinated by yeah, you know, it's one of those races that got tighter. But you mentioned about Mandela Barnes and Ron Johnson. Did you want to go into further, or did you yeah, want we're to just, go, yeah, we're gonna go. Yeah, we're gonna just jump right into now. that one
3: because that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's an that's an interesting race as well. Um, yeah, I don't have a, a bow on the uh, on the Vance Ryan thing. Um, it is interesting for me that that race is so close, given uh JD Vance's history with the truth on a couple of different things, you know, Tim Ryan already represents the state uh, as, as a U.S. house of representative member. So I'm, I'm curious to see if like he gets that centrist base. And he mentioned, I'm not sure if in that clip montage, or he mentioned, I know he mentioned this in the debate because I was watching it about he's standing for Democrats, Republicans, and moderates, who are against these extremists. So that clip has been making the rounds in terms of a soundbite. And and I, again, I'm not, you know, live in the state of Ohio or not, don't know many people in the state of Ohio as well, but I would think that that would resonate more. And I and, and think it's good messaging on his part to try to say, look, similar to what President Biden ran on, there are good Republicans. We want to bring them over here. And we want to stop the extremism of the party. Like you mentioned, Vance associating with a few of those folks on that side. Um, speaking of extremists, Ron Johnson, uh, let's let's pivot to Ron Johnson and Mandela Barnes because this is another close race for the Senate seat out in Wisconsin. A CBS poll, their latest one that was just done last week, October 7th, um, found that Johnson was about 50% uh, favored, over 49% to Mandela Barnes in terms of Wisconsin's likely voters. One interesting thing that I saw was uh, voters were asked about their main reason for choosing either one of these guys for the Senate position. Amongst the people that were polled for that were going to vote for uh, Man- Mandela Barnes, it was 55% just to oppose Ron Johnson. 29% said they like him. And then 16% said he's the party's nominee, meaning, you know, I, I vote D down the ticket uh, or I vote R down the ticket. Where as opposed to Johnson voters, this is where I thought it was interesting. The numbers were inverse, right? Like to oppose the opposite candidate, Johnson voters, 23% of them said uh, that they would vote for him just to oppose uh, Mandela Barnes. Uh, 53% actually said they like Ron Johnson. And then 24%, a little bit higher than on the Democratic side, said they would vote for him because he's the party's nominee. Um, A lot of the same issues in this debate uh, were talked about just like we saw them in, in the, uh, the J.D. Vance, uh, Tim Ryan montage there that we played. Same things hitting on abortion, on crime. Take a listen to some of the highlights from that debate.
2: What has come to light is how people have unfortunately used the Straw tragedy, even going so far as to use it in commercials, re-traumatizing families. Now, under my plan, the perpetrator wouldn't have been able to get out if he paid $1,000 or $100,000. We have a huge problem with
1: skyrocketing crime. Uh, one of the issues is we're not keeping criminals in jail. And Lieutenant Governor, was, uh, when he was in the legislature, wrote the bill to eliminate cash bail. That is one of the methods, one of the methods that we can use to make sure the dangerous criminals
2: stay in jail. The senator called the overturning of Roe vs. Wade a victory. He celebrated the Dobbs decision, and he said that if women don't like the laws of their state, like the 1849 criminal abortion ban we have here, he said they can move. I can't think of a more callous, out-of-touch, or extreme position to take. If I were in the U.S. Senate, I would absolutely vote to codify Roe v.ersus Wade to protect the right to an abortion and the right to choose into law once and for all to protect women's rights.
1: By the way, the most extreme position here would be no limits on abortion whatsoever. Allowing abortion right up to the moment of birth,
2: which is what the lieutenant governor supports. So what I've recommended is let we the people decide with a one-time, Single issue, single issue referendum uh, that asked the decision that needs we need to come
1: to decision on, which is at what point does society have the responsibility to protect life?
3: Ron struggling a little bit there uh, with the answer. Not sure what was happening there in that clip. Um, you know that race. Uh, I mentioned the CBS News latest poll and and how close that race is. And obviously, Mandela Barnes is the current uh, Democratic lieutenant governor, just similar to like uh, John Fetterman in in Pennsylvania. But one cool, uh, not cool thing, uh, something that I saw on the CBS News poll, there were reasons for backing Johnson was one of the questions to the Wisconsin voters. 83% said they were voting for him because of his economic policies. 68% said his Senate record, 39% on his COVID views, 37% on his abortion stance, Uh, and you could go check that out at cbsnews.com to see more of like, this race is so close. One percentage point, according to this poll conducted back on October 3rd to the 7th. Um, and the reasons for backing Barnes, Wisconsin likely voters, they mentioned 73% on his stance on abortion, 50% were his economic policies. 48% uh, said that they would vote for him because of his views on police and crime. And then 35% his record as Lieutenant governor. Um, And then the big thing we've seen this play out in the Kansas referendum. Uh, We've seen it on the ballot so far, not only in that state, but the way it's playing out in these debates and issues uh, nationwide, uh, 72% of Wisconsin voters say abortion is very important for them. And that's why they would vote for Mandela Barnes from this same survey. Only 27% say they would vote for Ron Johnson, just based off that issue alone. Okay. So I mentioned some numbers there. We heard some some more of the clips, a lot of the same type of rhetoric, maybe not to the same extreme level. Um, And again, that's just from a montage clip. You could check out both uh, debates online if you want over on YouTube. But what are some of your takeaways about not only the seat that's up for play here with Barnes and Johnson, uh, but also some of the stuff that they talked about there in the debate? And then Wisconsin also has the big governor's race, as well, which is huge in that state. We're seeing a lot of states are going to have big governor races uh, on the ticket uh, coming this fall. But uh, obviously, incumbent Democratic Governor Tony Evers is up against Republican Tim Michaels. So, uh, what are some of your takeaways on what we just played and, and the race? You know, I think probably the stupidest thing I've heard so far, and there's been plenty of stupid
1: things I've heard, um, you know, from some, from some Republicans. Um, it might have been Ron Johnson's stance on Social Security. If you know, for anyone who's paid attention to politics, especially just demographically uh, and young people, we've talked about this before. You know, vote more frequently. You know, the Congress will take you more seriously. Um, don't touch Social Security. Don't talk about it. Simply say you support it. End of sentence. Johnson foolishly put forward the idea that every few years, entitlement programs like Social Security should be brought before Congress. You know, to be able to make budget decisions and vote. And immediately, Democrats jumped on that with the idea that, well, wait a minute. So if we have a Republican Congress, are you suggesting there may potentially be slashes in Social Security? That's never been asked of Johnson, but the implication is Congress would have a role then in deciding the entitlements there. And immediately, polling data changed drastically. Mandela Barnes probably shouldn't be as close as he is, but that particular argument has really gotten people's attention in that race and suddenly propelled Barnes to be in a much more competitive race. I'm still stunned by just the level of stupidity of that comment. Um, you know Johnson's a pretty milk toast candidate. Um and could have basically kept silent and probably just coasted his way to to victory but left the door wide open. You know we also saw though um his stance on abortion, you know, going to a state referendum, um, which is just, again, coded language for we don't even want to talk about this at the congressional level. And Barnes does the right thing there of saying that I, as the state's representative, will certainly go forward before the Senate and try to and codify the right for women to have an abortion at the federal level. So the states don't make this decision. And that's a very important distinction for voters. Um You know, Wisconsin's interesting state. You've got Madison, you've got Milwaukee, you've got major cities there that, again, young people, when I think of Madison, you think of the University of Wisconsin, you think of Milwaukee, obviously, you know, everyone, you know, Bucks fans and all that such, Um, you know, there is a, you know, Wisconsin is one of those states that definitely can swing either way. Wisconsin went to Biden in 2020. So this race, similar to what we saw in Ohio, and again, knows the trend. We're talking about two states that changed in 2020. You know, are we going to see the same thing? Actually, that's wrong. I, no, Ohio actually, I think stayed with Trump uh, right. in the 2020 election, but, um, but closer though than 2016. So definitely races to follow, but closer than I would have imagined. Um,
3: but yeah, just I mean, just putting his put his foot in his mouth uh, as uh, <laughs> the yeah. only way I could summarize that. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot of key races. You know, we you've talked about it a bunch on this show about Pennsylvania and and Dr. Oz and. John Fetterman, obviously uh, in North Carolina, does a big race with Ted Budd and Sherry Beasley. That's happening there as well. New Hampshire's got a big race. Uh, Nevada, I mentioned, Mastro versus Adam Laxalt, the Republican um, versus the Democratic incumbent there. Warnock and Herschel Walker, we talked about in our last episode. Here in Florida, Marco Rubio and Val Demings, right? Uh, Rubio right now maybe four points, percentage points wise, ahead of Val Demings in, in a in a recent poll there from Mason Dixon. Um, if you want to check out all of this poll information, like I mentioned, we this was NBC News, CBS News, as well on the Wisconsin uh, voters issue. We've been conducting our own focus group research stuff with uh, Republicans, moderates, Democrats, independents. Uh, we're going to be doing some stuff, like I mentioned, in Illinois. We just did some stuff down here in Miami. So we'll be doing that and releasing that as part of upcoming episodes. As part of, you know, our look at, you know, a little bit of research here from the Can We Please Talk podcast, we want to talk to voters and find out a little bit more of where they're where they're leaning in some of these uh, issues and and in some of these Senate races. Um, when we come back after the break, we're gonna be talking to Gisu Nia, human rights lawyer. She's also the director of the Atlanta Council of Strategic Litigation Project. She's going to be talking to us about everything that's been happening with the protests in Iran. Gisu after the break. the presenting sponsor of can we please talk is fresh roasted coffee since 2009 their passion has been bringing you gourmet coffees from all over the world you know how much nick and i drink coffee we love it here i'm a k cup guy nick's that french press guy over there uh right nick you're a french press guy
1: i am but i've also used a a chemex i've also used a percolator like most people do yeah but regardless of your type of grind fresh roasted coffee's got you covered in addition to single origin blends mike's a columbia person i'm a sumatra drinker they've also got a variety of flavors you also get sampler packs too i'm all about the sampler packs but most importantly let's say coffee's not your thing if you're a tea person Mm -hmm. they got you covered too mike they cover all their bases so go there and learn about your your learn about your coffee style you go there to a three four question quiz you'll find out what coffee is recommended for you so you're learning something in addition to buying something but as a listener there's an additional benefit for
3: buying from fresh roast coffee look at this man this man sets up the softball i hit it out of the park it is true um if you take that questionnaire that's on their site it's awesome and it gets you right into the flavor profile that that matches you best with the coffee that you should be buying but you want to enter a promo code at checkout put all that stuff into the cart there Enter in the promo, to- promo code, excuse me, can we get 20? Can we get 20? This offer is valid for new fresh roasted coffee and positively tea customers. You're going to get 20% discount on any and all coffee and tea unless otherwise specified. Code is not valid for branded merchandise or coffee gear. One use per customer. Head to freshroastedcoffee.com today. All right. If you recall uh, last episode or two episodes ago, we had a common Mohamedy. Iranian journalists talk to us about everything happening in Iran. Here to talk more about it because we want to spend more spotlight and attention on all the protests that are happening over there is Gisu Nia. She's a human rights attorney, the director of the Atlantic Council Strategic Litigation Project, and she's also a board member on the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center. She's going to tell us all about that. She joins us here on the Can We Please Talk podcast. Gisu, Mike, Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us.
0: Thank you for having me.
3: Absolutely, you know, Gisu. Um, you know, full disclosure, and I mentioned this a, a couple episodes ago. Um, one of my close family friends, nephew, who still lives in Iran, has been arrested in the protest. So this has been kind of a little bit personal to me. Don't know him, um, but I know what the family's going through right now. Living over here abroad, I also have uh, you know a lot of friends that work in the immig- immigration rights uh, space here that are Iranian. Um, so this is kind of warped into my world a little bit because you know, I know what this feels like being a Cuban American uh, and, and some of the issues that have happened in Cuba over the last year or so. Um, for you, the question that I had right off the bat was, I saw a tweet that you posted recently about how many deaths we are inching closer to each day, how many uh, confirmed deaths of people that are under the age of 18. There's been over 5,500 arrests, including 147 students and 36 journalists. Just at a 30,000 foot Uh, overview for you, because I know you are Iranian, like, how is all of this making you feel? How are you digesting all of this? What, What are some of your takeaways with all of the protests that have been happening over the last couple of weeks there in Iran?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think as Iranians who live abroad, who are in the diaspora, you know, our bodies are not physically on the line in the street protesting for these basic human rights. And so the least we can do is show solidarity and try to make sure that the international community is at least not standing in the way of the protesters. There's so many things that the international community can do to show solidarity or to in fact prioritize the interests of the people of Iran over their corrupt and human rights violating leaders. And too often the policy choices result in collective punishment for the people or are kind of focused on a containment policy that doesn't really serve the aspirations of the people. So um, it's very emotional, of course, to see protesters to be so young and overwhelm- overwhelmingly under the age of 25. And who is putting myself were it not for a difference in circumstances? So where there's an opportunity to try and um to try and amplify their voices, I'll try to do my best to make sure that we're hearing directly from the protesters, anonymously, but about what they want.
1: So you just mentioned a moment ago about media coverage. In your view, what are we not we, I guess the mainstream media? That's not really Mike my, myself, but um but what do you what do you experience as what is being mostly broadcast or being correct, but then also more importantly, what's being misrepresented or underrepresented in the coverage?
0: Well, um, yeah, you guys are not the mainstream media, and it would be completely unrealistic for a protester in Iran right now to come on and do a half hour or hour long podcast. First of all, their internet has largely been slowed down or even completely disrupted in some areas. So how would they even join via video link? I mean, it's it's not going to happen, right? So, um, but in terms of general coverage, I think that the media is doing a way better job of being in touch with, you know, what is actually being said on the ground and sort of amplifying voices and not sticking to just, you know, some... Regular voices that maybe represent what's happening in Iran, but have their own specific lens. And a lot of times that's a very security focused lens. So over the years, the commentators that usually speak on Iran issues are commentators that talk about the ballistic missiles program or talk about Iran, you know, the Islamic Republic of Iran's military activities in the region or talk about the Iran nuclear deal. These are all very security focused conversations. And in the past, some of those commentators have been asked to give um, perspective and insight on protest movements. But a protest movement like this, which is driven by social change, and at the core of it is about discontent over a social restriction that resulted in the tragic killing of a young, beautiful Kurdish girl who was allegedly wearing improper hijab, you know, you have to bring people on or media has to bring people on who have studied Iran's Islamic penal code, who understand the discriminatory legal framework in the country, who actually speak to protesters and have documented the violence the violations that have been committed against them, not just in this spate of protests, but also in prior protests that we've seen since 2017. So studying youth movements in the country, all of that is very relevant too, but some of that was missing. I think the media is doing a better job of identifying experts who can speak to that and provide some of that context. And then also, trying to amplify the actual voices inside Iran which are really the voices that we need to be listening to
1: you know not not growing up, not having been to or grown up in iran in you know, my experience of the nation you know like most americans is our understanding of you know earlier with a supreme leader in the 1980s you know and Khomeini you know come to find out we have another ayatollah that is still serving as supreme leader not in the best of health which is arguably a good thing um but back then, for me growing up, I was born 78, the idea of a protest at this magnitude would have been unheard of. What's fueling just these young women and, and men as well to take to the streets? Most recently, there was footage of police officers that rather trying to round up protesters just marched alongside them, either because they saw the numbers and or like we saw with Yugoslavia years ago, everyone's walking in, in the line with the same step of the realization that the government is just not for them anymore in in your view what's different now what's sparking this protest against the regime that historically we've seen um has be, has been oppressive in you know a generation ago as well
0: i think one major thing is hypocrisy so with the advent of social media and with images being readily shared on Instagram. A lot of Iranians are on Instagram. Of course, most of these social media services are censored or there's restrictions on them, but Iranians have VPNs to bypass that. And there is a very active Instagram culture. I would follow, you know, lots of Iranian fashion bloggers and things like that who are blogging from Tehran. The thing is that on those networks you can see there's been pages that have been dedicated to showing the lavish lifestyles of the children of the clerics and the children of the leadership so while the fathers have been preaching this kind of pious islamic you know supposedly islamic lifestyle the reality is their children are you know there's footage of them drinking alcohol Um, tattoos, uh, showing lots of skin, wearing lots of makeup, basically dressing in a way that doesn't really comport with the preachings of their fathers. And so there's a major disconnect between what the leadership has been saying the population needs to do and what restrictions they need to live under and what their own children are doing. A lot of those children also live, work, study, and visit Western countries that the fathers have been denouncing as hotbeds of sin. So there's just a lot of hypocrisy and the Iranian population has seen that and the young population has seen that. So the revolution in 79 was really, you know, meant to be something that would square class disconnects. You know, there was a sense that there was a big stratification between the richer elite classes and the lower classes um or those who had less financial means. And so the fact that the middle to, you know, folks in the middle to lower class are who is taking to the streets and dissenting is really significant because those were the bedrock foundation of the revolution. Um, and the revolution has not delivered clearly for them in the long term. And the children of the leadership are le- leading very flashy, lavish lifestyles that all can see.
3: So, you know, you mentioned a couple of things there about Iran's penal code and some things that are in the legal space. So I want you to put on your legal hat for us here as a human rights lawyer, because I mentioned your tweet earlier that talked about how many uh, people have been killed in these protests, how many arrests. 5,500 is is a large swath. And that's just as of this taping journalists that have been arrested in this. um, We're hearing of kidnappings. We've seen videos that have been posted of of women that have been beaten in the streets. Um, From a legal standpoint, your estimation, is there anything that can be done on the international court level for some of these crimes and atrocities that are being committed against citizens?
0: Yeah, it's really complicated Um, without getting into too many too into the weeds for the audience. Iran, um, the Islamic Republic of Iran, is not a member of the International Criminal Court. So it falls outside of the jurisdiction of the court. I should note the United States is not a member of the court either, um, nor is Russia, nor is China, so. Um, But with Iran, there's been different attempts, um, including by myself, to ensure that there isn't impunity for certain crimes, but typically there would have to be some sort of cross-border element, or there'd have to be another creative jurisdictional pathways. So, um, you know, I could successfully bring submissions that look, or not successfully, but like bring submissions that jurisdictionally are sound if they're looking at crimes committed by Islamic Republic of Iran officials in the territory Sorry, in the Syrian conflict that were completed in the territory of Jordan, which is a member of the ICC. Or recently, last month, we, um, my co-counsel and I brought a submission for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps' downing of a civilian aircraft um, over Tehran skies. But uh, back in January 2020, but that was on board a Ukrainian registered aircraft. And because Ukraine has given jurisdiction to made a declaration of jurisdiction to the International Criminal Court, it falls under the jurisdiction of the court. But these are creative jurisdictional pathways. So currently there's no International Criminal Court that has jurisdiction to look at this unless Um, the UN Security Council were to refer the matter, for instance, which will not happen because Russia is on the UN Security Council and so is China, and they're not going to be inclined to do such a thing. Um, The other ways that there can be jurisdiction are through national courts. So national courts, some of them have what we call universal jurisdiction frameworks, which means that there does not need to be any territorial or nationality link the country in which the matter is being adjudicated. So a lot of folks may have seen that trials involving alleged perpetrators from the Syrian conflict have happened in German courts, despite the perpetrators being Syrian, the victims being Syrian, and the crimes having occurred in the territory of Syria. War crimes, crimes against humanity, all of that can be prosecuted it's it's these crimes that countries have determined are so terrible and so horrible that one needs to be able to prosecute them anywhere. Um, So that is more of what we would look to in terms of, you know, in the international community being able to adjudicate these matters. But what I hope in the future is that the judiciary in Iran will one day be independent in a you know future Iran where a lot of these trials against perpetrators who are committing these violations right now would be able to happen in domestic courts Um, which is why it's so important to preserve and collect evidence of the atrocities now because we want to preserve that for future accountability processes.
3: You know, I want to give space to you, uh, for you right now to, we were talking about in your introduction, the the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center. And obviously, we know you work at the Strategic Litigation Project. Can you explain a little bit of what both of those orgs are doing to either help right now what's happening in Iran or, or recent things that have happened in Iran? Yeah,
0: so I run the Strategic Litigation Project at the Atlantic Council. It's a project that I've founded, like basically developed in 2019. So we're kind of young, we've only been around for three years. But the idea is really that there are laws around the world that can provide um, accountability for atrocity crimes and human rights violations that can be hard to come by in some countries' domestic courts. So a situation very much like Iran, we don't only work on Iran, we also work on Syria, we work on Venezuela, we work on issues affecting the Uyghurs in China, we work on Ukraine and Belarus. So you might see a pattern, it tends to deal with countries where either they're being subjected to terrible atrocity crimes um, and they have the jurisdiction you know, domestically to do something or those countries where that pathway is not really there. And so you're gonna need to look to international uh, remedies for such a matter. Um, the idea was really that we could maybe strengthen some of this legal framework or introduce new laws that would allow litigators to be able to bring these cases forward. Iran is a big part of the work because of my personal background and because I've been working on Iran human rights issues for more than a decade. And so, the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center, where I'm board chair, I used to be executive director of that group um, for a few years. And the mission of that group, which has been around since 2004, so it's been around, it'll be twenty years um, in about two years from now. Um, is really to document human rights violations in Iran and keep that record. And again, it was with this view towards accountability that you know maybe in the present we don't have the ability to bring these cases, but maybe in the future we can. And I can say that we've already had a turn towards accountability. So years ago, it would have been inconceivable. We're not inconceivable, but. There were no trials against uh representatives of the islamic republic of iran for core international crimes and now this past july a swedish district court convicted a man named hamid nuri for atrocity crimes that he committed in 1988 in iran's jails when he was responsible for killing thousands of iranian political prisoners and what is considered to be summary executions. so that was a historical case, but it was a very important case. It was the first ever universal jurisdiction trial um, against an alleged perpetrator from the Islamic Republic of Iran. And if a lot of mid to lower level perpetrators start leaving the country in a time of uncertainty, they may end up in places where they have visas, like France, Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands. And all those countries have universal jurisdiction frameworks.
1: It's a- just pivoting to another when we think about from the international community standpoint you know our reaction to iran similar as we would have with russia and other nations sanctions often comes up you've you've out, you've shared via twitter just where you stand you know with sanctions and not necessarily in being in support just take us through a little bit of just your viewpoint on sanctions, but in general, you know what would make sense for the international community's best response to be most, most effective one uh, in supporting the protesters and, and the citizens of Iran?
0: Sanctions are a really charged and loaded word because also I think um, there is a lack of distinction between different types of sanctions and what it means. So, I am against broad-based economic sanctions. I always have been, and I'm against it in pretty much every context. Um, I think we were talking about Cuba. Clearly, broad-based economic sanctions have not really delivered change, have they, um, after decades of such a policy? So I actually think it's lazy policy, It's sort of like an easy, quote unquote, easy thing for the U.S. government to do, but it results in very little real world change, in my opinion. I haven't seen a lot of great examples of where it's worked. A lot of people point to apartheid South Africa as an example. That's great. But look, it's been applied in multiple other contexts where it clearly hasn't yielded the results it needs to. Um, I would distinguish that from targeted human rights sanctions. That means asset freezes or travel bans on those that are responsible for human rights violations in a regime. And the idea is to modify behavior, to incentivize them to change if they feel like their money might be taken away from them or they may lose the ability to go holiday in Switzerland. Now, that might have a really... You know, it, we'll, we'll see how it goes. That might have more of an impact on a Russian oligarch, let's say, who's used to holidaying in Monaco or something like this. But um, when it comes to Islamic Republic of Iran officials, uh, the picture is a bit more complicated because it's really the children that actually are the weak point because they're the ones that are going to North America and Europe and kind of living this very disconnected disconnected from their parents' lifestyle that's very lavish and kind of going and coming and all this. Um, And then the parents themselves, I mean, I'm a big proponent of not only freezing assets, but in their cases, because they're chronic human rights violators, actually seizing the assets and transferring it from perpetrators to victims. Um, That's a bit more of a, you know, that's taking it a bit farther than what sanctions tool targeted sanctions tools are normally intended to do they're normally intended to be behavior modification tools if you're actually seizing and repurposing assets that's more of an accountability tool but we did see this happen in the russia ukraine context where the oligarch assets were i mean they haven't all been successfully litigated to be able to be liquidated but they were seized to basically fund ukraine's reconstruction and Canada is the first country to pass legislation that allows for such a repurposing. And I think that they need to put it to a test case and use that legislation to repurpose the assets of plenty of IRGC linked individuals within their own borders that people have you know, drawn attention to. Um, So that's what I think needs to happen. And that's different from broad based economic sanctions with broad based economic sanctions, especially when it's enacted over a long time, you'll see like rising inflation in a country, no doubt a lot of Iran's economy economic problems are due to mismanagement and corruption, of course, but there's no denying that US sanctions have played a role and that just results in the middle class getting squeezed. And a lot of times the elites actually profit off a black market that arises as a result of that. So I think we need to get more surgical. And by we, I mean the international community needs to get more surgical um, with how they approach, uh, you know, really targeting those that are responsible for repression in a country and are acting in contravention of international conventions and
3: laws. Gisa, before we let you go, um, I wanted to read something that uh, a listener wrote into us that had a question, and I I thought it was so relevant to bring that up here for you to answer, given all of your background and work and perspective on this. um, This movement, I'm paraphrasing now uh, what they wrote, but this movement seems on the surface uh, to be very grassroots where there's no figurehead. There's no real leader. With that being said, what do you think is the end goal? Because if it's toppling the government, then what, who takes over, who fills that vacuum? Look at the instability in the region. Um, What are some of your thoughts on that right now as the movement does seem very grassroots again, as to an outside observer here. um, But what is the end game here? Because we've seen, different instances where protesters and 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 in different uh, time periods I think back in two thousand and nine as well where these unfortunately ha- have not been successful uh, what do you make of all of this and the end game?
0: yeah so the protests in June 2009 were very much about reform in the system because the slogan at that time was, where is my vote? So it was about a disputed presidential election, and it was actually making an institutional plea, really, like, why were our votes not properly counted? The slogans now are death to the Islamic Republic, death to the dictator. You know, they're not wondering where their votes are. They don't really think their votes are mean anything. Um, and again, the head of state... The supreme leader is not voted in; he's, um, you know, unelected and accountable to no one. That's referring to the presidential election, which is really more like a selection because the candidates are so heavily vetted. The president doesn't have any real power when compared to the supreme leader, who's the ultimate decision maker. Um, but you know, it's really up to the people of Iran to tell us what they want. Um, it would be very easy for me to say there should be a free and fair election. There should, you know, just the basics. There should be a referendum on the Islamic Republic to see if they should still even be in power. But it's really up to the people to tell us what they want. And we, as the international community, just, I think, need to not stand in the way of that by rewarding their oppressors or making deals that are that will ensure that any kind of, you know, grassroots movement to demand change is sort of snuffed out. I think there's ways to amplify and elevate what they're calling for without getting into all these questions. It's it's really up to them to determine their future and they are the future, the people of Iran are overwhelmingly young and their leadership right now is at the age of 70 and above. Like these young people don't have any Memory of the 1979 revolution. They weren't even alive, you know? So I think it's just really important that we listen to them and make sure that there's solidarity and support for the people, just as I would say for oppressed people anywhere who are demanding a change.
3: Isu, I can't thank you enough for coming on the program. Uh, like I mentioned, she's a human rights attorney. You can follow her on social media, on Twitter, or on Instagram. She's also a board member on the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center and the director of the Atlantic Council Strategic Litigation Project. Gisa, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us. A continued success to you, and please stay safe.
0: Okay, thank you for having me your website should be a marketing asset not an
1: engineering challenge
0: empowering everyone from independent designers to whole marketing teams webflow combines the power of html css and javascript and places them all in a completely visual canvas trusted by companies like lattice and discord it changes the way marketers designers and engineers create for the web now you can build the site you want without the dev time start building for free at webflow.com
3: thank yous there to Gisu Nia. Like I mentioned, follow her on social media. You know, the, the last guest that we had on this topic uh, with Kamen mohammadi mentioned amplifying the hashtags, right? Getting, getting into the weeds there. Gisu mentioned it as well about um, the VPNing access part of this, where Iranians are circumventing, you know, the internet crackdown that's happening there, and they're posting a lot of this stuff to social media. So amplifying the voices. Uh, I mentioned that because Gisu has been doing a great job on Twitter and I follow her and and you know sharing some of the statistics that are happening over there I mean again you know it, it's heartbreaking and I, I, I want to continue to devote attention to this because this is a little bit unlike what's happening with Russia and Ukraine with uh, you know foreign power invading you know a, a neighbor uh, to the south and along its borders um, this is this is a little bit different right this is a government, just you know, lashing out against his citizens and and this morality police that you know we don't know about anything like that here. Uh, John Oliver did a great uh, summation piece on this. Um, you could check it out last week tonight. John Oliver, uh, Nick, real quick for you uh, as we wrap here. Um, the overall takeaways on what continues to play out in Iran. You mentioned there about that one video of you know police just being like, you know what, f this. I'm joining in. Like this is not, and again, maybe they made the decision of, hey, I'm not going to fight all these protesters, or maybe they truly are on this side. We're starting to see more, more people like in positions of limited power. I would say there where they're starting to join in with the protesters, and then we saw something on Iranian state TV where it got hacked, and it was you know a slogan saying like you know join the uprising and something like that, and they cut back to the anchor. Um, what are your overall takeaways on not only what some of the stuff that Gisu said, but what's playing out in Iran? Yeah, I tend to be, I mean, a little bit alarmist here, but, you know, you said a moment ago about
1: um, the morality police and you know, not quite the same here. And you're right. I mean, we are an elected government. We do not have a supreme leader that there is no system of election to uh, determine. Um, but we do have school boards. You know, We do have governors. We have mayors, you know. I'm reminded of of that young woman who simply because she had used Facebook, you know, her messenger was was basically accessed by Facebook, given to you know a state government. <laughs> as far as you know, why she was traveling across states, which was to seek an abortion. I remember that kind of mentality. And again, this is on a state to state level because now, you know, the matter of abortion is at a is at a state level. Um, is chilling, though. You know, into any to any citizen, air. Just anyone listening to the show, if you are a voter or or you're eligible to vote, do so because this shit on some level is happening here. Um, I would say also, though, to what, you know, something she brought that really, really stood out to me was the power of social media. You know, we've seen various examples of it. And often we've had someone, you know, Dr. Catherine Perlman, who talked about digital responsibility, you know, for young people with devices. But, you know, something we're also seeing at the same time is what is the power of social media? You know, we've heard situations before in China where the internet didn't get cut off or certain apps are not accessible. In Iran, as Gisu was talking about, you know, with the internet unavailability to have a protester on, on a show like ours would be next to impossible right now. So, but what we're seeing though through Instagram and all these tools that we often and rightfully criticize and sometimes demonize, we are in this moment though seeing the power of it because something she brings up is. Perhaps one of the reasons, it's a theory she's putting out there, and it makes a lot of sense, that the reason that there is such fear right now and a passion to see change from the people within Iran, the young people there, but even to folks like Mike and myself who are also trying to amplify these voices through our respective channels is because we're just all witnessing this directly from people living there telling their stories even gisu who's done a phenomenal job also amplifying those voices on her respective outlets we're all able to signal boost and this is where social media can be a cause for good um oftentimes when it sadly is not but um that would I think that's due to me and the other part too is what being what being brought up about the hypocrisy you know of those in power um, who do not necessarily have their children subjected to the same level of authority. You know, with when we think about a hijab, for example, um, that was stunning to me. I wouldn't have guessed that clerics would be so willing to, you know, say what's right for you is not apl- applicable to to us. That was quite stunning. Um, but so many just awesome takeaways from what she had shared, and similar to common. Um, just really taking us inside what's going on right now with the protests. And and as a international
3: citizen, what do we all need to be aware of and what can we all be able to do? You know, it sounds a lot like uh, what played out with Herschel Walker here, right? Uh, I'm pro-life I'm against uh, anybody getting an abortion, but I'll happily pay for one. Right. Nice Uh, connection. Yeah, exactly. I just just came to me as you were saying that Uh, we sign off and we leave it there. Uh, Again, our thank yous to Gisu follow her on social media across Twitter and Instagram for this show, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Can We Please Talk Podcast on Twitter at Can We Please Talk Uh, video content. You want to see a Gisu's interview and other interviews that we've done on this show, head to our YouTube channel, type in Can We Please Talk Podcast. It'll pop right up. Hit the subscribe button for me. Uh, Audio podcast platforms, you know them by now, Apple, Spotify, Google. Shout out to ACAST, our hosting platform. We can't do it without them. We can't do it out with fantastic guests like Gisu, and we can't do it out listeners like each and every one of you that write in good, bad, or indifferent that listen to this program. We're so, so, so appreciative as always. I'm Mike Leon.
1: down the days to DC. I'm Nick Sperry.
3: We'll see everybody in DC and we'll see everybody next time.